Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. Dr. Gail Gross is here with us, and I'm super excited because she's a nationally recognized family, child development, and human behavior expert, author, and educator. Her positive and integrative approach to difficult issues helps families navigate today's complex problems. The fact that she accepted to be a guest on Back to Basics is, is so humbling and, and really exciting because she's frequently called upon by national media, including most of the major TV networks and newspapers. She's a veteran radio talk show host, as well as the host of the nationally syndicated PBS program, Let's Talk. Dr. Gross has written for years now for the Huffington Post, Right Global, and Empower Her. She has multiple books. There's so many awards and recognitions that I could name, but I guess that I will highlight that back in 1998, the Dalai Lama presented her with her first Spirit of Freedom Award. So without further ado, hello, Dr. Gail, and welcome to Back to Basics. Hi, Letizia. Thank you. I'm, I'm so proud to be here. It's an honor, and thank you for having me. Oh, that's that's very nice. You know, and I'm going to have to start saying this. The people, you know, because I get you know, PR people telling me about the guest and, and you read your biography and you you have this idea that, oh my gosh, she's such a big shot and she's going to be, you know, and then you meet people like you and they're so authentic and nice. And so for that, I want to say, you know, thank you because it, it really is inspirational when you see someone that has achieved so much and has stayed so humble and approachable. Oh, thank you, Leticia. I have to say the same about you. Oh, that's very nice. But yeah, no, the Dalai Lama has not presented me any awards yet. I'm working on it. <laughs> I think if he ever meets you, he will. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. That's very kind. But no, it's true. I, I've had the honor to have, you know, Seth Godin on the show and, and Tammy Simon from Sounds True. And it and it's the same characteristic, that authenticity that, yes, we've been successful, but we're willing to empower others and, and just... Just be kind. It's such a, it's, it's very refreshing. You know, it's so interesting you say that, just be kind. The Dalai Lama has a saying, and his saying is, kindness is my religion. Powerful. Yes, I have it on a pillow in my house in Houston. And I, I really, I really believe that just cuts through everything. And if we could just try that one thing. <laughs> We'd all be all right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and that speaks volumes because that's that's what shines through you. And I'm looking at you via Zoom, but I can I can only say that. And and I know that other people that have accepted to be on the show that were long shots for me to even ask, right? But that's what Tammy Simon said. She said there was something in your email that sounded authentic. And the mm -hmm. fact that she could recognize it via email, you know, made me made me very happy and 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 reinforce that, okay, we're doing something here. Let's keep going because as, as with everything, life is ups and downs, right? Yes. And you know, what you just said is so powerful 
and brilliant that authenticity is actually the key to health. And it's actually the key to life. And when we think of all the things people want us to do and the things that people try to influence in our lives, if we were just authentic, then we'd be living our own lives. Otherwise, we're living everybody else's life. You know, people call it integrity, but it's not exactly integrity. They call it vulnerability. It's not really vulnerability where this new idea of sort of making virtue, victimhood or vulnerability, it's not that. It's being authentic, self-actualized. And there was a line in my favorite movie, Out of Africa, with Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. And she's asking him to marry her. And, and he doesn't want to get married, though he loves her. And she says to him, you know, all these people are marrying. She cites all these examples. And he says, when I come to the end of my life, I want to know that I've come to the end of my life, not somebody else's idea of how I should live it. Mm. And that's the key to life, is being authentic and trying and and experiencing what is your goal, your, your interest, your feeling. If you follow your authentic self, your own authority, then you're going to live life. Most people don't live life. And then they end their lives realizing they've done this the way other people wanted them to, or they did that the way they thought they were supposed to, but they never did what was authentic for themselves. So that's that's right there. We can wrap the episode. You gave that's us the, the biggest. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Rubicon, as as I heard someone say. No, that that's that's amazing, and and really the fact that there. Are, You know, because at this point, you, of course, are, are an expert in what you do and you're, you have a PhD in psychology and you're, you, you help families. But also, you, you're, I see in, in the very short time that, that we've spoken and what I read is you're a spiritual teacher because you're also passing this wisdom. Uh, and, and that is, I think, what we need. And that, that's why I'm so excited to have, to have you here sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. and, and always... I can tell that this episode could be so much and I want to get to the meaty stuff because you're doing meaningful work. But I always interested to know about the younger Gail when you were a <laughs> child and where you were growing up. Did you visualize or envision this important work you were going to do? Was that something that manifested or that you were clear from an early age or you discovered that along the path? You're asking such a great question. I had... A, a near-death experience when I was five years old, which I really don't often talk about, wow. <laughs> but wow. I had a, a gangrenous appendix. And in those days, they used ether. And so they, and my appendix was in, in the back of me instead of the front. And so they had to have me in the operating theater for a long time. And I had a near-death experience. And, and when, after that, I was home, I really did uh, feel much closer to a consciousness in relation to God. I did feel more connected than I did before that surgery. And so my dreams, my thoughts leaned heavily 
in the direction of God, even though I was just a little girl. So I always felt very connected to God. And so that guided me even as a child. Of course, I, you know, I didn't have any goals as to wanting to be a this or a that. I just was. I just was um, moving in that direction of thinking of other people. I always felt very loving towards children. I wanted, you know, be a mother. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. thankfully I was. (laughs) But that guided me. It was like a change in me. And so I did have that experience when I was little. And wow, I really don't talk about it. So. Well, I'm glad I asked something that. Yes. <laughs> because it's, I, I normally, when I, when I came up with having the idea of having a podcast, it was because for me, I work in the family business. I come from a Sicilian family, which is very close-knit, yeah. where a lot of these interactions count. And, and you, I can tell I married a Dutchman. And uh, he's wonderful, but the concept of family is very different. Yes. Although he's a great father, but it's like my, his family, yes. me and the ki- and our kids. That's his family. For me, I have a more expanded <laughs> relationship of family, which is fine. But we've had to adapt mm-hmm. into that that whole you know scenario. So so I always been very curious about people's journey into. You know, you find people like you, and there, and I think the fact that you were guided and had that consciousness so early on allow you to do so much because you're a young woman. <laughs> you know, I mean, and you look great, and I, I'm sure you have many years still to do great work. I'm saying your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, when you're reading 98, the Dalai Lama already were giving you <laughs> prizes. It's like I want. That you you really started, I guess, young, knowing to to fulfill your purpose, so that that that's great. And there's people that maybe you know they had they also encountered their purpose or their mission or whatever we want to call it, but it's later in life. Yes. And, and so I think that the people that can achieve so much is because they had that certainty somehow of what they were called to do. Yes. Well, I just I did really what I mentioned earlier, I just followed my heart. And wherever my heart led me, I followed and I followed it authentically. You know, I, I when I was very young even, I remember this once a person asked me what was my favorite story when I was a child. And surprisingly, other than Bambi, which I love Bambi, <laughs> it was the king, the emperor with no clothes. Mm-hmm. Because even when I was little, I really somehow caught a glimpse of that idea that, you know, so many people would go along with the herd, but I really didn't. I just followed my own authentic self. I never could go along with the herd. So even when I was young, I would step back and say, no, I, I don't really feel this way. And I would do what I thought was right rather than be influenced by peers or parents or other people. It's definitely influenced by my parents, but I'm not, not anybody else's. I think that's acceptable. <laughs> I think that's acceptable. But I think what you just said, it's also a nugget of wisdom, is to be courageous enough to stand by who you are and to trust yourself that 
you are on the right path. And it's incredibly difficult. And, and as I feel myself, I'm sometimes so clear. And then I have, in weeks like this week, I felt completely like I had a major meltdown. <laughs> and, and I knew inside of me, I know I'm on the right track, but just those meltdowns are inevitable. And yes. so to know how to deal with those yes. uh, is very important. Yes, because the meltdowns are very important. You know, it's sort of like uh, we can't have change until we have chaos. So we have to have chaos to bring us to change. And in my book, The Only Way Out is Through, I give two chapters which sort of give you strategies on how to navigate the chaos so that you move forward into a larger you, a larger persona. And that happens when you stop and you think about how to navigate the chaos. And so if you let the meltdown stop you, which is what it's about, and you stop and go inside, whether it's meditating or journaling or paying attention to your dreams. But if you do the inner work when you're in a meltdown, not only will it lead you out of the meltdown, but it'll lead you into a larger you, always. So it's the strategies and the inner work. I'm going to send you my books, and I'm going to send you The Only Way Out is Through. And there are two chapters, well, three chapters that you might be interested in for the next meltdown. And one (laughs) one is on strategies. One is on what to do in the inner work, how to do it for yourself. And the, and the other one is how to analyze your own dreams so you don't have to go to someone like me to do it for you. You can do oh. it for yourself. And not only can you do it for yourself, but that's the best person to help you through it, yourself. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I have them here, and I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to ask you next. And I know that in that book, you, you talk a lot about the chaos, but also about grief. Yeah. And I know this is, I have one of my best friends just recently lost her mother. And, uh, and I know she had a very special relationship with her. And as a friend, it's hard to help her in this moment because, you know, every person grieves differently and you have to let them grieve. And I'm sure that in the book you go through it. But, you know, it sometimes it's scary because you see your friend that they, that they get into that mindset of the life ended completely. And it's hard to provide the help or the support that to get through it. Well, exactly. You know, the book is, it's an interesting journey, that book. It began as not my story. I was just writing about how to navigate life's changes. So every change, every ending signals a beginning. And so therefore, every ending, every transition we make means that we have to grieve. Because we're saying goodbye to something. If you're buying a new house, you're saying goodbye to your old house. If you're moving to a new apartment, you're saying goodbye to your old apartment. If you're going to college, you're saying goodbye to childhood. If you're getting married, you're leaving your parents, making a new home, a new creation. If you uh, get a divorce, it's you're grieving the marriage, the failure of the marriage, and, you, and the, the world you lived in now is di- going to be different, that, that you're saying goodbye to, so that you'll have a new life, a new world. 
And yet there will be always threads and remnants that connect us to the past. And so what's really important is to know how to let go of the past to embrace the future. You know, I have a friend who talks about friendship and he says, you know, everybody holds on to every friendship and they feel they have to turn themselves into knots and bows, trying to hold on to high maintenance friends, even though they were narcissistic friends. But the truth is you have to weed your garden. You have to weed your garden from time to time so that you make room for the new friends that are more in line with your authentic self. And when we have high maintenance friends, for example, it's, we always know that that's wrong for us. Anything that's not easy is wrong. Life is not meant to be a, a horrible struggle. It's really meant to be a dance, and, but it's to be a conscience, conscious dance. And most people live and die unconsciously. But when we're conscious and we do the inner work, we can choose for ourselves and not be dominated by our feelings. If we let our feelings dominate us, then we're being reactive. We're projecting all this stuff that we're not dealing with. But if we deal with our feelings, then we integrate them. We put them right where we know they, they are. And now we can navigate our lives deliberately and consciously. And we can use those feelings if they're appropriate. We want to. We don't have to if we don't want to. And so that is why I then realized I was on Fox, in fact, and a mother called in, uh, emailed in and said, just an excoriating email to me, you know, what could I possibly know about grief? What could I possibly know about loss? And I wrote her an email back and I said, I totally understand how you feel. And sadly, sadly, I know how you feel because I also have lost a child. And I said, I realized then that for people to believe my book and this approach that was me kind of looking at Jung in relation to me, Carl Jung, the, the great psychiatrist, and uh, that sort of his model for grief. And then I organized it for me in, in the modern age. And so... I realized to be authentic, I would have to tell my own story. I had no intention of doing that. And so when I fell back and, and decided to do that, that became a, a different kind of a book because then I wove myself through it to show what I did and what my husband did with me to not only survive the loss of our beloved daughter, Dawn, but to live again. I, in fact, I almost called this book People Who Grieve can live again. And not only, you can't go back to where you were, but you can live more vitally because you know something that most people are running away from all day long, which is that we're all terminal and we're all terminal together. Nobody's getting out alive. And so it's this idea that we bring to the front of our brain that lets us live completely. Vitally, like Robert Redford said, when you come to the end of your life, you have to come to the end of your life and not anybody else's idea of how to live. So, well, well first of all, I'm sorry on, on the loss of your daughter, but you know, everything has a meaning and a purpose. And, a, and I believe that 
that yeah, that you you are reaching the lives you're reaching and your message is so powerful because they come from that um, unfortunate experience, but also that your daughters is living through those words because yeah. any mother that reads that know that that's you know the the true feelings of yeah. of, an, of that experience. Yes, and you know therefore it looks like a grieving book, and it is about grief. But it's really a book for any transition, for fighting with your friends, divorce, empty nest, new job, whatever. Because the same process is the process we use. It's just how we use it. And in all these changes or transitions, we must grieve first. Regardless if we've lost a person or a marriage or a friend or not. We're just moving to a new house. We, our psyche will still go through the same process. We have to let go and, and move forward. And the inner work is the key. And that's the same key for your meltdown. It, it definitely chaos, resonates. It definitely resonates. Yeah. Because the chaos <laughs> is breaking up of the old way. That's really what it is. So when your psyche... In fact, we have a joke in my family, my husband and I, that when the psyche wants you to change, what is it about us that we're so resistant to change? It's what, what Freud called the human dilemma. We are afraid to change, even though we know that the future could be much better. We hold on to that bad friend, that bad marriage, that bad neighborhood, whatever. We hold on rather than trying to move forward because it's familiar, because it resonates with us, and it resonates with something in us that we feel we can handle, that's somehow connected to our past or even our family of origin in, in relationships. Those patterns are familiar. And so if we bring all of that to consciousness, now all that chaos that stopped us in a meltdown and allows us to do the inner work and bringing, brings us to consciousness, now we sail forward, always into a larger, better container. That uh, definitely resonates because I've been putting my fair amount of inner work, I like to think. And even in the pandemic, I know you are because obviously I'm going to put your webpage on the show notes because, guys, you have to check how much information. There's a tons of articles which I, I don't want to go on site, but you write about friendship in uh, many blogs, which I think is really, really useful. Mm -hmm. And you write about relationships. I mean, uh, all sorts of things that have impact our lives. But to go back to what you were saying, because of COVID, I started, I really committed to the mindfulness meditation, which I've always been, you know, entertaining a little bit here and there. But finally, I, I was able to bake it into my life. And um And now that I went through this meltdown and, and doing a lot of reading, I feel that I'm going through the same experience with my eyes open. Like yeah. I see everything that's happening. I see what's painful and I acknowledge that it's painful. It's, it, yeah, it's a meltdown. I'm going through pain, but I know why. Yeah. And, and even accepting the reason why with the eyes open is so much empowering than before. My favorite thing I say is if when you're in the meltdown, in the chaos, if you can hold the tension and just hold the tension and focus on the inner you, how am I feeling? 
how, how, what, what's triggered this? What's going on in my life? And then what's so wonderful is that we have access to something that really helps our brain. And it's called journaling. It seems like such a nothing to do. But I advise to not journal in a journal that can be seen by others. I, I advise journaling on legal-sized paper, writing out really unedited how you really feel, get in touch with you how you, you really feel, and then burn it or tear it up and throw it away because you don't want anyone you care about or love or whatever, whatever, to find that and, and then be hurt. I, in my case, don't want people to find it after I die. <laughs> I relate. I have all my journals into a bag and they're closed. Yeah. With, no, that's a better account. I didn't yeah. think about burn them. <laughs> yes, burn them. I have a friend who makes a celebration on New Year's and she starts a fire in her backyard and she just burns up all the last year's troubles, all the things that hurt her and bothered her that she wrote down. And then she destroys the, the, for a clean slate for a new year. I but love see, that. It's, we have in our brain biologically something called the default network. And the default network means that if we're left to our own devices, our brains just roll around, roll around, roll around, thinking about negative things all day long <laughs> because we ruminate. And so we go over things. We're really, what we're really trying to do is solve our problems. So we go over them and over them and over them. We may call a close friend who we really, who can put up with us. And we say, oh, let me tell you. Then we go over and over because, and that's how our brain really works. It ruminates. It goes, it wanders around and it wanders around on negative points because it's trying to work out problems. But if you focus it, if you deliberately focus your brain that through a meditation, for example, or journaling, for example. And if you're focused and you focus your brain on a single something, whether it's a mantra or a word or a sound, whatever, now you've stopped your brain from wandering. You stopped it from going over and over and over and ruminating over and over things that are bothering you or just negative thoughts. And suddenly it starts thinking positively. It's trying to help you. And this is how we get control over our thoughts and our feelings because we are bringing them to consciousness. And now we have a way through meditation, for example, to help our brain think more positively. That will really help us. Because now we, when we think positively, we find solutions. When we think negatively, we're looking for solutions. But when we're on, when we use, when we, figure out how to use our brain deliberately, consciously, now we can uh, use it to our best interests, what works for us. And that's in, in my book, it, I, I write about the valley of despair, which is to take yourself into this place where nothing is familiar. You know, you've had a fight with your husband and now instead of calling him and settling the fight, which is the most tempting thing to do because you want to lower your anxiety. Instead of lowering your anxiety, hold the tension. Just sit with your feelings. And now you're cast out of this old persona that is you, and you're cast out into this new persona, which is unfamiliar, and I call it the valley of despair. 
in psychology, they call it the neutral zone, but I don't think it's that neutral. So it sounds valuable. It sounds more accurate. <laughs> and if you can hang out there and hold attention and do the inner work, uh, if you Google, if you, I was going to say Google, if you journal, if you do your dreams, if you listen to music and contemplate Baroque music in particular, because that's like a meditation, it's syncopated with your heartbeat. If you can do the inner work and, of course, mainly meditate, then all, all, all of a sudden you have more blood going to the prefrontal cortex. You have uh, your heart is calming down, the beat of your heart. It's syncopated. And it's syncopated now to, if you're listening to Baroque music, to 60 beats per minute. So now your circulation is better. So you've got more blood going to your, to your prefrontal cortex. Your circulation is better. And now you have a chance to move by holding this tension into a bigger, better you because you're using the brain in like an orchestra. You know, there's an old anecdote out there that says Einstein used 10% of his brain and all of us use three or 4%. But that's a total lie. <laughs> I don't know who came up with that idea, but it's not true at all. We all use all of our brain. Imagine if you only live, used one little corner of your brain. It would, yeah. wouldn't be very effective. We all use all of our brain. And we use our brain uh, in, in concert. But if we meditate, for example, we use our brain like a symphony, like an orchestra. We're getting the best of it because it's in, it's in harmony with itself. If we put little electrodes on all of the musicians in an orchestra playing a piece of music, when we watch their brain waves, pretty soon they're all syncopated. I mean, it's really very interesting how much control you actually can have when you're conscious over yourself. And that's when your decisions are powerful because they're authentic, they're for yourself. Well, I have no doubt why this book had so many awards and I want to talk about the new book, but I don't want to cut you shy. How many awards this this book got? You know, I'm not 100%, but it's four or five. This one, the only way I was through, it won two independent press awards in two different categories. It's a bestseller in several categories. It won a Nautilus Award, the Indie Gold Medal. So it's won a number of that is amazing. And I have no doubt. And, and then your your latest book, because I do want to make sure we mention it, is How to Build Your Baby's Brain, which, yes. you know, I married late. So I still have a six-year-old at home and that's a 10 year wonderful. Look at how much you can do yet. <laughs> yes. And that's why when you were mentioning the Baroque music, I know I know she mentioned that in one of the yes. of the strategies with to yeah. deal with kids and and, yeah. you know, and my husband is a musician, so he, we do put a lot of classical music. But, you know, it's getting harder and harder. And, and people say, well, I believe we, we were not raised in a multimedia, you know, environment like these kids yes. are being raised. And sometimes I feel that saying, well, what's going to be of them? And I agree because they have to they have to be bored and they have to get creative on their own. But at the same time, they have to be prepared to face life with the tools that are there right now to for them. Well, I tell you, you know, I have two grandchildren. And so when my grandchildren were, were in utero, I would say to my 
beautiful daughter-in-law who I consider a daughter, I would say to her, you know, Kate, if you play Baroque music, your baby will hear it in the tummy and it'll settle the baby down and it'll help the baby. You know, we all think that in that tummy is a, a plant growing or something, <laughs> but it's a person. It's a person at, at four months in utero, that little person is learning language. And we never used to understand where language evolved from. We, the, the famous uh, linguist Chomsky would tell us, you know, there was this, uh, this unfolding of language, but we never understood why. Now, uh, Patricia Cole in Seattle has done a lot of research on this, and she's discovered that babies learn their mother's language in utero. And if they have an active father and he reads a little story to that tummy from four months on, the baby will actually recognize father, his language, his voice. And the baby then is actually going to school in utero. They, un they see colors, light and, uh, light and dark. They hear sound. They hear voices, yours through an echo chamber. They, if there's twins in there, they fight. They sidle up to the sacks to one another and put the, their cheeks against each other. When mother is happy and laughing, baby is happy and kind of pushes off of the uterus to jump up and down. If you remember those feelings. Oh, yeah, and I do. So, and we, we are very, we're very in touch with our babies in utero. And all so much development is happening in utero. It's very, very important for us to be stress-free as much as we can because cortisol, the stress hormone, passes through the um, placenta and can influence baby's development. And if mother is stressed, doesn't like her job, doesn't like her husband, whatever, mm -hmm. or all, then that she's overproducing cortisol and her baby is getting jolted as if it's drinking caffeine all day long from the stress mother is under. And that baby can be born on high alert. And that's the child that always seems anxious, always, you know, uh, responds in, in, a, in a way that makes you think they have ADD, but they don't. But it comes from the high dose of cortisol. And if baby is stressed after birth, by detaching too early, separating too early from mother without compensating for time away, then baby gets too much cortisol in the brain, which changes brain architecture and impulse control. So we're like this spiritual chemical being that's a whole entity. We're not, we can't cut ourselves off at the head. So we're all one thing that's happening. And we have to think of how dangerous stress is, how important it is to bond with our babies, and so forth. That's definitely a book I will be giving. I, I, I <laughs> always give one about breastfeeding because I, I was, you know, it wasn't easy, but I committed to it and was one of the best experiences of my life. And I sometimes hear people how they kind of give up, uh, in my opinion, a little bit too early. But this sounds like a great also baby shower gift. Yes, and with that gift, you could give a little list of Baroque music. Because I love it. Baroque music is, it puts the baby into a meditative state and because it's syncopated with your heartbeat. And not, not Mother Einstein, not, not 
a Mozart, not all these other music, you know, kinds of music, but Baroque music in particular, like Pachelbel Canon in D, for example. And it, what I had my children, my grown-up children, what I suggested they do, is <laughs> that they put uh, tapes in their, you put in your iPod, I guess it was, and to download Baroque music. And then in the background where the baby was playing and sleeping, they would just play Baroque music as background music. And I said, it'll make a difference in how they learn, how they process information. And they're just little learning machines in the beginning. You know, there's more brain activity happening from birth to 10 years old than will happen from 10 to 100. Mm. Trillions of connections are happening. And so the baby is in formative years learning everything, good, bad, and indifferent. And, and so it's important that we take command. If we don't organize their environment for good, the environment will just impact them spontaneously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. But if we deliberately control the field, the environmental field will have a much better outcome. That's very important advice because, and and I know we are, I can talk to you, I can feel for hours. So, <laughs> but uh, I think you, what you just said, I feel it's very, I have a 10 year old and I, we like to think we have a, you know, fairly nice environment at home, but I can already see how everything impacts him because he's a very emotional kid. And just by seeing the news of shooting, which we try to avoid. But, you know, if you're at a store and they're putting these news all over right. Right. and they there's kids there, you, you cannot filter. And, and to see that impacting them right. in a way where I don't remember, like, thinking the world is terrible. And, and, yeah. and sometimes I hear with how they talk with a friend and I see such calamity, like a very uh, a mentality. I don't know if it's the video games or something, a mindset that to me is very scary. Well, and, again, mm-hmm. again, you hit on something so powerful. Just let's look at video games. Actually, as a species, we should right now be evolving into a more peaceful species. Why? Because we arrest all the people that do bad things. Sometimes we arrest people who do good things. But nevertheless, we do arrest a, a lar- large number of people that do bad things. So they're taken out of the population. Then we have wars, and people go to war, and they fight. And so a lot of people that are war-oriented, they're taken out of the population. So now you really have people that are, that are at home having, you know, evolving to more peaceful, should be evolving to more peaceful uh, uh, parts of ourselves. But it's not happening because we have because we're evolving to be a more peaceful species, we've compensated for that with these violent video games. So we're making our children violent. We're making our children violent. We've known this since the late 60s. I'm sure you remember when you were first in school, the little study where you have a child looking at a a TV set and he's like a three-year-old and there's a cartoon and at the cartoon, the rabbit takes a long stick and he bops, bops, bops the, the road runner on the head yeah, or whatever. It's true, it's true. And then the 
thing shuts off and now the little child will go to a pile of toys in which there's a stick, a rubber stick actually, and he picks it up and he starts hitting the stuffed animals because we're social animals. You know, Albert Bandura tells us we're social animals and we learn by imitation. So what we see, we imitate. We're social learners. And at the end of the day, this is we're taking our children's innocence away and we're making them violent. We're compensating for becoming less violent by then educating our children to be violent. And all these things change brain architecture. When you uh, see a violent movie, say uh, you're too young to remember Psycho, but I remember oh, Psycho. I do, rem- I do remember. remember Psycho? Uh, yeah. Janet yeah. Lee and Tony. Yes. Oh. Tony um, Anthony Hopkins. No, not no, Anthony. Anthony. Well, yeah, there was a, uh, not per- Perkins. Was Perkins, it? yeah, Perkins. Perkins. Yes, yes. So you, you know you're sitting in a movie and you know it's a movie and you know these people are actors. They're not really doing these things. And yet you watch Anthony Perkins come into that bathroom and your heart's going like this and you're yelling, turn around, get out, you know, whatever, trying to help Janet Lee escape. And then he picks up that knife where you have that shower curtain and he starts stabbing her and you're jumping out of your seat screaming. Now, you know, intellectually, this is all make-believe, but you are involved through your imagination in this movie. And because you are in here because of your emotions, now your brain is registering abuse. So you're watching a violent movie and your brain is taking that memory and storing it with the emotion that you're feeling as you're watching the movie as a true memory. So you are storing, not that somebody out there is being killed, but that you in here are being abused. Well, you get a heavy enough dose of those kinds of things. And what that does is it over, every time you get frightened, you start producing cortisol. It's, it's made, made to save us in its, in its real intention, its biological intention. It's a, a survival technique from our cave, cavemen period that we never outgrew, we call it flight or fight. So now we can't f- flee and we can't fight. And so it stays inside of us. And that cortisol bathes our brain in this very dangerous stress hormone. And what happens next is that if we get a consistent dose of this stress hormone, say our, we're detaching too early from mother, or say we are in poverty and we're going to school and we don't, aren't dressed like the other kids and we feel embarrassed. Whatever is consistent stress, we're not bonded well with our parents. This re- overproduces cortisol. Cortisol changes brain architecture and impulse control. And so if I said to you, there's no true memory, that everything that we store as a memory, every event is stored with the emotion that we had when we experienced the event, then you know how not only your 10-year-old child, but how we are all 
operating out of this, um, when we're frightened or upset, out of an emotional place inside of us. There was a fellow named Paul McLean, and he called it, talked about the triune brain. But just to simplify it, there's three important things going on in our brain when we're stressed. This part of us that's so large that separates us from every other primate is the prefrontal cortex. Now, this is where our executive function is. This is where our critical thinking, our abstract thinking, all going on here. Then there's a seahorse type of piece of our brain called the hippocampus. And that's where our learning and our memory are from. And then we have this other part of our brain, which is normally the prefrontal cortex is the captain of our ship, our critical thinking. But this final part is called the amygdala. That handles our flight or fight. That handles our emotions. And so when we are upset, or if you don't have a good night's sleep and your body is stressed, now here's what happens. The process of our critical thinking slows down. So now we can't think quickly. The hippocampus narrows, so we're not learning and our memory is not as good as it should be. And the amygdala, where our flight or fight live, our emotions, puffs up. It gets larger and it takes over and it becomes the captain of the ship. So now, because it's our survival and whether it's an emotional stress or a real physical threat, our brain isn't distinguishing. The same process is happening flight or fight. And our, our brain is preparing our body to survive. So our adrenaline pumps, our heart starts beating, our blood draws away from our skin in case we're wounded. We overproduce white cells. So our immunities are now being confronted and, and sometimes drained because cortisol has got to be taken from all, all these places to protect us. So now we're in a high alert position that can not just damage our brains, but damage our bodies. And when we talk about illness, we recognize that illness is connected with stress. And when somebody comes in and says, I had a heart attack, now the doctor will say, a savvy doctor will say, what happened about the time you had this heart attack? What was, what's going on in your life? What, what are your feelings? So we know that, that if we are dominated by our emotions, we are operating at a deficit. So if you go to an important meeting and you didn't have a good night's sleep and you're sitting around a board table and other people did get a good night's sleep and you just flew in for the meeting, you're at a disadvantage. They're all operating from their prefrontal cortex and you're operating from your emotions, your amygdala. You know how you say a baby gets cranky when they don't have enough sleep? Mm -hmm. So do we get cranky when we don't have enough sleep. Or if we're stressed. Or if we're in a meltdown. Mm -hmm. So we can take over our body if we know how to do it and make it work with us for the best of us. We can heal our bodies. We can heal our minds. But we have to become conscious Wow, that's that's really amazing explanation. I honestly had never heard anybody that can put it together, all the pieces of the pie like you're doing with 
you know, the science and the medical facts with how you feel with the practical examples. So I really thank you for that. And, you know, I want to make sure that the audience knows that all this wisdom that Dr. Gail is sharing, it's, uh, I mean, there's so much in, in on her webpage and articles and blogs that you can read and that will really help you if you're a mom for relationships, for friendship, for, I mean, she's written about pretty much everything and, and the books too, that they, they, they seem amazing. So before we, we call it quits because I, I, I can keep going, but I always ask one last question, which is, you know, when times are dark and, and you say you go to prayer and that you, you have faith, is there anything else that helps you connect to your true essence that makes you tick that you want to share with us? Yes. You know, if I were, do you, do you remember the movie, The Graduate? Yes. Remember Tom Cruise? Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> <Makes it> to- <laughs> when Dustin Hoffman is at the foot of the stairs in, in, the, uh, in the entry of his house. And one of his parents' friends puts his arm around him and he says, son, plastics, plastics, meaning that's the future. Yeah. And what, what should be invested in. Actually, the real frontier is not space, it's not the ocean, it's not the earth, it's the brain, the mind, it's who we really are. And so if we learn to meditate, it will change everything in our lives and we will be living consciously so that we are not projecting out all these emotions on other people, on other countries, on other planets, we will be, when we won't project anymore. Now we'll put our feelings where we know they are and we consciously and deliberately then use what we want. You know, there are many trees in our forest, but the child tree can't help us if we're in a problem. It's a child. We have to move to the adult tree in our forest. And the adult tree, I always tell people, Put your arm around the child you and say, in my case, little Gail, you can't help us out of this problem. This is a big problem. But you stay with me. I'll get us out of this problem. And then you stay, step forward in your adult. And this takes meditation because meditation puts us in, in a, a very focused mentality so that we can look at the patterns that are dominating our behavior. Those patterns all come from our childhood. You know, I I like to say this, most people don't believe it, but they're gonna write it on my tombstone. (laughs) In everybody's life from birth to death, there's only two people, mother and father. And every relationship, marriage, friendship, colleagues, work, every relationship is based on the early patterns with those two people, the way we learn to get along, the way we learn to manipulate or maneuver, the way we learn to suppress, be quiet, um, gain approval, all these things, these patterns come from our early childhood. And so to bring them up, to bring them to consciousness means they'll no longer dominate our behavior. Now, we don't project them out anymore. Now, we can choose deliberately and consciously how we want to act 
because now we know where those patterns are coming from. Even how you select a mate. Many times when you date, you'll select the negative characteristics of the opposite sex parent. But when you're making a good relationship, it's usually the positive characteristics of the opposite sex parent. So we are organized by our early childhood and what's familiar, what we feel we know how to handle, we can handle, that comes from our family of origin because that's what molded us. You know, there's a big question today, the most important question, is it environment that molds us or is it, um, is it genetics? And we now know it's a 50-50 split that we are given a certain amount of genes, 24,000 genes, but they can't all activate. So what chooses which genes activate and which are suppressed? Your environment. So you can have a child who might have turned out to be a, a, a killer and you can move him into becoming a surgeon, for example, or something like that. But if we are with our children, we bond with our children, we recognize what's going on with our children, we can help them develop their potential, become the best they can really be, process information the best it can be processed, do well in school, for them reach their full potential if we set up the environment to do that. Otherwise, as we started spontaneously, the environment will sometimes be good and sometimes be bad, that you can have a huge hand in how your child turns out. So consciousness is the key. Meditation is one of the greatest tools. Well, thank you for that. I think that's really, you're leaving us with very powerful words and, and a lot to think of. I am definitely a big fan officially, and I really want to thank you for your time and for all the wisdom you've shared with us today. You are the best interview I've ever had. Oh, please. You are, Leticia, your questions are wonderful, and you give a chance to get thoughts out. That's perfect. You know, when PBS hired me, they hired me because I let people tell me what I wanted to hear, and you are really great. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank I you very much. Thank you for putting it on record by Dr. Gale. So that's yes. very nice. The best <laughs> well, interview I've had. I really appreciate it. It was very nice. And you have an open microphone. Always at Back to Basics. Thank you. God bless you. And thank you. Thank you. Likewise. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you and until the next time.